Judges chapter 4, picking up right where we left off last week. We got the big map back because we're kind of jumping all over from place to place. So I just wanted to give you guys a little visual aid to kind of know where these different places are that we're talking about uh, because these last few judges that we've talked about, well, we've talked about three so far, although I don't know if we can count Shamgar, but, but we've talked about two in detail, Othniel and Ehud, last week, and uh, we kind of jumping all over this, this land that Israel's in now as they're, as they're coming up against these enemies that, that God is allowing to come in and, and, and overtake the Israelites because God's people, the Israelites, have been disobedient to the Lord. And so God is having to teach them some tough lessons, and they're lessons that they are getting for a few years but then they are turning back to their evil ways. And so we've already seen that cycle in the last couple of uh, weeks, and we're going to see that cycle again tonight. Judges chapter 4, we'll pray, and then we will get started. Father God, we come to you tonight. I thank you for the delicious food that we had. I thank you that we come. I thank you that we love each other, dear Lord, and I thank you that you love us and God, I hope that we love you, and dear Lord, I, I believe we do because of the love I see in this place among one another, dear Lord. That's the evidence. And I pray, God, that you would help us to continue to love each other. God, keep us safe from any attacks of the devil, dear Lord, in our personal lives and on this body, God, of believers, that we would stay close together, that we would stand firm on your word, dear Lord, that we would trust in you, that we would be there for one another, dear Lord, and that we would do our best to serve you in any way that we can, dear Lord. I pray that you continue to bless all the things that go on here, the sleeping bags that we're working on, the shoebox ministry, the music ministry, dear Lord. There are so many things that are going on here, and you just you got your hand in them, dear Lord, and you're blessing those things. And we give you the glory, and I pray that you keep using us, and I pray that you use me tonight as I preach and teach your word. Let me preach and teach in a way that's going to help, help us to get something from this, dear Lord, that we see you, that we see your love, that we see that you fight for us, God, that you take care of us, and I pray that you just speak to us through these words tonight. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. Amen. One thing I did want to say before we jumped into chapter uh, 4, and that is at the very end of Judges chapter 3, the last verse. We didn't spend much time on it simply because there's just not a lot of detail there when we talk about Shamgar. He's only mentioned in a couple of different occasions, once here, and then again in Judges chapter 5, uh, that we will read next week, Lord willing, in a poem that Deborah uh, is saying in Judges 5. But we don't see much about Shamgar, but I did want to point out something that's a good tip, something for us to consider that may be helpful to you if you ever are studying the Bible. Now, in my translation, in Judges 3, verse 31, it says, After Ehud, Shangar, son of Anath, became judge. He delivered Israel by striking down 600 Philistines with an ox goat. Now, your translations probably do not say that, unless you have a Holman Christian standard or the, the regular Christian standard. It probably does not say that Shamgar was a judge. Now, I wanted to point that out for you. Now, if you go back and look at the original Hebrew, it does not say that Shamgar is a judge. Now, the translators of this particular translation saw fit in the wording that since he followed Ehud, they assumed and interpreted it that Shamgar was a judge as well. Now, most of your, your translations probably do not say that Shamgar was a judge. It says something about he came after Ehud and then he delivered Israel. Now, we know that he delivered Israel, and there is a possibility that Shamgar was a judge, 
But the text does not clearly say that. Now, in mine, it does clearly say that, but I disagree with mine. I don't think mine uh, is, is right here in this particular instance when compared to the Hebrew. And so the reason I share that with you and is it's good for us to view different translations when there's a text or a passage that you are having trouble understanding. Because if there's a passage and you read it in your translation, you say, I don't get it. Well, if you read it in another translation, it may say something very similar, or it may say something different. And if you see those differences there, it gives you kind of a, kind of a springboard to say, okay, here's what the differences are. Why is this different? And it may help you to kind of pinpoint some difficulties with the verse or, or kind of study and wrap your head around, okay, here's what I think this really means. Now, in this particular instance, I don't agree with my translation, but every translation has these instances where the translators kind of take something and they say, well, we really think this is what this means, even though it may not spell it out. And so every Bible's kind of got those things sprinkled throughout there. And you may find in studying that there are things in your Bible when you kind of study against other commentaries and look at the Greek or Hebrew, if you've if you got something you can uh, study those in, that you may see those differences. And so I wanted to point that out because you may have noticed that last week when I said that Shamgar was a judge, and you may have said, well, my translation doesn't say that. And you would be correct. The Scripture in the Hebrew is not clear. Shamgar may or may not have been a judge of Israel. He did, however, deliver Israel, and you will, in most lists that you find, most people will say that Shamgar was a judge. Uh, and I just probably spoke more about Shamgar just in that than the actual scripture tells us, because it just doesn't tell us much about Shamgar. So anyway, moving on to chapter four, we are going to attempt, Lord willing, to go through this quickly, because we need to get the whole story. This story is very similar to that of Ehud. We need to get the whole story to see everything that's going on. And this chapter is not terribly long, but there is a lot that goes on in this chapter. And this, this story is similar to Ehud in that it has kind of, a, kind of a gross and really kind of intense ending. Now, in that, 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 that story last week, we won't go back over all that, but if you were here, you remember, boy, that was, pretty, that was some pretty intense stuff, and we're going to see some pretty intense stuff in this passage tonight. In Judges chapter 4... Verse 1, the Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud had died. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his forces was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth of the nations. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord because Jabin had 900 iron chariots, and he harshly oppressed them 20 years. So here our cycle is starting out again. Israel did good for a few years after Ehud had delivered them from Eglon, who was the last king that, they were, that, was, that was oppressing them. They've been good for a few years, but now they're doing again what was evil in the Lord's sight. Now we're introduced to a, to a different bad guy in this passage. And the bad guy that we're introduced to here is Jabin, the king of Canaan, and his right-hand man, his commander, who is Sisera. Now, Jabin is a name that, that you may have seen in, in, in Scripture before. It comes up a few different times. In Joshua chapter 11, if you remember when we went through Joshua, and you may not, that's okay, there was a king called Jabin then. Now, that was about 150, 160 years probably before these events that we're looking at tonight. Now, it's possible, I suppose, 
that, that Jabin lived a really long time, and it could be the same Jabin. It could simply be that there is someone else named Jabin. Uh, that's not out of the question. Sometimes we see people in Scripture who have the same names. That's not hard for us to imagine that people could have the same name. There may even be some of us in here that share the same name. Or, or we have a friend or another family member that shares our name. It's possible that, that, I guess, although unlikely that this is the same Jabin, it's more likely maybe that it's a family member or just somebody else by the same name, or it simply is just his family line that's being pointed out here. Uh, another possibility that some scholars would say is that Jabin is simply a name that's, that's, that's attributed to the king or the leader of these particular people in the same way that Pharaoh was the name that was attributed to the leader of the Egyptians or that President is the same name of the leader uh, that's of the United States. We may refer to the President, and if we don't specify, we may, we may not know which President we've talked about. We've had a bunch of them. And so those are some possibilities as to what Jabin could be. Could be a family name, uh, or it could just simply be a name that's attributed to all the kings of those people. So those are some possibilities. Regardless of, of who Jabin exactly is, he is the bad guy in this, in this passage. He's the one that God has handed over the Israelites to. Now it says here uh, that God uh, sold, the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin the king. Now we've seen that language already. It doesn't mean that God has, has physically sold them, that Jabin paid God some money. It's simply saying that God was not protecting his people anymore. God had promised to protect them if they had been obedient, but now they're choosing not to be obedient, so God's protection is gone. So now when their enemies are coming against them, their enemies are able to overtake them because God is not with them because they are not trusting in the Lord. Now, Jabin's right-hand man here, his commander, is Sisera. And it says that he lived in uh, Harasheth of the nation. Some of your uh, translations may say uh, Harasheth of the Gentiles or Harasheth uh, Hagoyim, something like that. Uh, it just, it, it, it all kind of means the same thing, but it's just uh, translated differently in different places. But it kind of tells you that where he was from. Now, they were from Hazor, which would have been up in this area. This is where Harasheth was in Hazor. This was kind of the area that the king and Sisera were in. Now last week, uh, we were in Moab. It was the king of Moab that was coming against God's people. The week before with uh, uh, Othniel, we saw that the king that was coming against them came from the Mesopotamia Aram area. And so this week, we're kind of back in the northern part of Israel. And uh, this is where Hazar and this is where uh, Harasheth were, that this king uh, who was coming against the Israelites was coming from. And he had, it says, uh, 900 iron chariots. And so the Israelites cried out to the Lord. They knew they were in a mess. They had, they had drifted away from the Lord again. They had done what was evil again. And now they were under this king that was very powerful. And he oppressed them, it says, for 20 years. Now, when it says that he had 900 iron chariots, that was a big deal. That was the, the most advanced weaponry of the day. It would be like saying uh, that he had 900 Abram tanks. I mean, that might be kind of a comparison. Something big and powerful that was hard to go up against. Now, it doesn't tell us here in this chapter, but we will see next week in chapter 5 where Deborah will say that the Israelites didn't have any weapons to fight with. The Israelites didn't have a whole lot of nothing. And so between the two chapters, and we'll talk about that more next week, but we see this contrast of why 
Israel would be afraid of Jabin and his 900 iron chariots because the Israelites didn't have a whole lot of nothing and this king had the most advanced weaponry that there was. Now in the next verse, in verse 4, we're going to be introduced to the judge who is going to deliver Israel this go-round. Deborah, a woman who was a prophetess and the wife of Lepidoth, was judging Israel at that time. It was her custom to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went up to her for judgment. So here is the judge. We get a few little details. I always like it when we get random details, like who her husband is. And like, we don't know who her husband is. The original readers may have known and may have heard. And those are details that don't really mean a whole lot to us. But, but the writer here is always writing little details like that. We see the same type of thing in Acts. We've been going through Acts. Luke is always putting in these little details that I believe uh, shows the authenticity of the Bible. Uh, if you were just writing a fake story, you wouldn't put in uh, pointless details that weren't there for any reason. Uh, but in the Bible, we have all these little details that are just in there because this is true. This is real life. These are real people. And the writer is recounting what actually happened here. Now, it says that uh, Deborah, it was our custom to sit under the palm tree of Deborah. So it was a tree that obviously was named after her, that area, because that's where she went often. And it was between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. Now, all of the 12 tribes had some land that they were allotted. Uh, some of them stayed on this side because they chose to. Uh, Gad, Reuben, and half the tribe of Manasseh stayed over here. The other half stayed up here. But the rest of the tribes were all on this end. Now, Ephraim's portion was kind of right here in the middle. Or right around this area is where Ephraim would have been. And Bethel is right here. So this is where Deborah would be. It says she was between De Bethel and Ramah. And they were, Ramah's not on our map, but they would have been pretty close together. And so this is the area that Deborah would have been in. And the Israelites were coming to her because they were being oppressed. They were, they were in trouble. They were facing hard times. And Deborah was the one who God had put into place. Now, both the judges we've seen to this point have been uh, men. Now we're introduced to a woman judge. Now, this is not a, a terribly uncommon for us to see God use a woman throughout Scripture to, to do His work. God uses women all throughout Scripture, and He's going to use one here to do His work in this passage tonight. Reading on in verse 6. She summoned Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, Hasn't the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go deploy the troops on Mount Tabar, and take with you 10,000 men from the Naphtalites and the Zebulonites. Then I will lure Sisera, commander of Jabin's forces, his chariots, and his army at the Wadi Kishon to fight against you, and I will hand him over to you. Now we're introduced to Deborah, the commander of, of the group of people that's going to take the Israelite forces into battle. So we've been introduced to the bad king, and we've been in, uh, Jabin, and we've been introduced to his commander, Sisera. Now we've been introduced to God's judge, Deborah, and her commander, Barak. And so uh, it says here that, that he is supposed to gather up some people from the tribe of Naphtali and Zebulun. Now those were two tribes, and they were settled kind of up here in the north. They were right here in this area uh, where the bad guys were coming from. So that's probably, I would assume, while those were the, the two tribes that he was supposed to take people from because this was the area of conflict uh, that was taking place. Now she says to him, 
Hasn't the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Now, it would appear as though God had commanded him already, or at the very least, maybe this is the first time that he's hearing it, and maybe she's revealing it to him. So maybe he's heard this already from the Lord, and she's just reminding him, hey, aren't you supposed to be doing this thing the Lord told you to do? Or maybe with her being a prophetess, maybe this is the Lord speaking through here, saying, uh, through her saying, hey, this is what I'm telling you to do, uh, that he is to take 10,000 men with him from the tribes of, of Zebulun and Naphtali, and he's to go to the Wadi Kishon, or the river of Kishon. Some of your translations may say something like that. Now, we've talked about a Wadi before in the past when we, uh, we were talking about Elijah. He was by the Wadi, and that's where the ravens came and fed him. Uh, but a Wadi is like a ravine or a valley, and sometimes it has water in it. Sometimes during a rainy season or a floody season, these, this valley or this Wadi, this ravine, sometimes has water flowing through it. And so it's possible that in this instance, it was at a time that water was flowing through it. So some of your translations may say river there, and for good reason. Uh, we see mention of that again in chapter 5 that we'll get to next week. Uh, some details that are there that kind of give us a little more than what we have here in chapter 4. So there will be some things that I may allude to in chapter 5 that kind of give us some details that we don't know about here and what we're reading tonight. All right, so... Uh, uh, Barak is supposed to take these forces and he's supposed to go to the Wadi Kishon or the river of Kishon and there the Lord is going to hand over Sisera and his forces to him. The Lord is going to fight for the Israelites and he's going to deliver them. In verse 8, Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. I will go with you, she said. But you will receive no honor on the road you are about to take, because the Lord will sell Sisera into a woman's hand. So Deborah got up and went with Barak to Kadesh. Barak summoned Zebulon and Naphtali to Kadesh. Ten thousand men followed him, and Deborah also went with him. Now, Barak should have probably had enough faith here that upon knowing what the Lord wanted him to do, that he should have said, All right, God, I'm ready to do it. But instead, he says, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Now, maybe he just felt like if she was a judge of God, maybe that God was with her, and if she win, he would have a better chance of winning. I'm not sure what his reasoning was. Maybe he was just afraid, and he wanted her to go with him. Maybe he thought she was sabotaging him, sending him off to die, and he's saying, I'm not going unless you go. You've got to prove to me you're in this thing. So we don't know exactly what his reason is for saying that, but he's not willing instantly to jump up and go do what the Lord called him to do because it's dangerous. He's going to be going up against bad guys who are going to be coming at him with 900 chariots. So it's natural to, for there to be some hesitation there. Now, you and I may experience similar circumstances. There may be things in your life that you feel that God is calling you to do. And they may seem very scary and very difficult to you. But we have to decide, are we going to be those who listen to what God says? Or are we going to be those who are like Barack and say, well, I'm not going unless somebody goes with me. Now, sometimes maybe it's okay to ask a friend to go with us and say, look, I feel like God's calling me to this thing, but I really need some assistance. I need somebody by my side because I'm kind of afraid of what God's calling me to do. And I don't think there's any shame in that. Although there may be times that God calls us to do things and we just need the faith in God to do it. To say, okay, God, you've called me to do this. 
You've called me to minister to this person, to help this person, to do this job, to do that job, whatever it may be, to go here, to go there, to enter into the ministry, to be a missionary, to be a pastor, whatever it may be, there may be times that we clearly feel God calling us to do something. And when He does, we should do it. But that's not easy to do. I say that because I knew the Lord was calling me to ministry for years. But I wasn't chomping at the bit to go into ministry, and I didn't accept that call for years. I ran from it for a long time. So I get it. I understand when God calls you to do something, how you can come up with all the negatives and all the difficulties and all the reasons why you're not good enough to do it. Uh, you're not alone in that. I've done that, uh, and there's been plenty in Scripture who would, who would follow that same line of thought that would not be good enough for God to use, yet He used them anyway because they were willing. And that's what God wants us to do. Now, had Barak have not gone with the 10,000 troops, I wonder if God would have delivered His people here. I would guess probably not. They had to go where God sent them so that God could do the work that He was going to do. If they did not go where they were supposed to go, and the enemy did not come where the enemy was supposed to come, God couldn't have done the work in the way that He did it. It was only by His people, uh, uh, specifically Deborah and Barak, being obedient to the Lord that the Lord was able to accomplish what He wanted to do. Verse 11. Now Heber the Kenanite had moved away from the Kenites, the son of Habab, Moses' father-in-law, and pitched his tent beside the oak tree of Zenanam, which was near Kadesh. Now, this is kind of an odd verse, and, and just kind of as we're reading through. Uh, if you first time seeing that verse, it really doesn't seem like it fits with anything we've read, and it really doesn't fit with anything we've read. It's there, though, because the author is preparing us for what is to come. He's introducing us to characters that are going to come up here in the next few verses. Now, he introduces us to Heber, the Kenite, the Kenite who had moved from the Kenites, the son of Hobab, Moses' father-in-law. Now, we might want to pause here for a second because some of you, it may throw up a red flag. Hobab was not Moses' father-in-law. It was Jethro, wasn't it? Or was it Ruel? Who was it? Because the Bible says that Moses' father-in-law was Hobab. It says that he was Jethro. It says that he was Ruel. So what are we to make of difficulties like that in the text? Now, some would look at those difficulties and they would say, Ha! Just proved it. Bible contradicts itself. They don't even know who Moses' father-in-law is. Well, I don't think it's that simple, uh, and I don't think it's a contradiction. I think, I, I, I think it is simple, but not simple in the fact that the Bible contradicts itself, but simple in the fact that the easiest thing here is that Moses' father-in-law may have gone by multiple names. Now, that's not hard for us to understand. If I were to tell you tonight, if you need a house built, a good carpenter that you may want to call is Charles Kirkland. And some of you would say, I don't know Charles Kirkland. But if I were to say, if you call Smiley, everybody say, oh, I know who that is. Some of you just for the first time learned that his name was Charles. The point being is that we know lots of people who have separate names. If I said, hey, you need to call Fish, some of you would say, oh, I know who you're talking about. Some people, if I said, you need to call Gary Van Norman, 
Well, some people don't know that his name is Gary. They only know him by fish. It's not hard for us to imagine people with different names. If I were to say something about Big Boy, y'all are knowing who I'm talking about. If I say something about Jennings Freeman III, y'all know who I'm talking about. If I say Uly Castle Rider III, y'all may look at me like I'm crazy. If I say Sonny, you say, oh. So if we're writing things down, we may write one name one time, or we may refer to him in another name another time, and we get it. Even in our culture, some people may have a couple of names and even a nickname on top of it. That seems to be the likeliest explanation, and that's not at all hard for me to imagine that that's probably the case here. And so that would be my first thought for the different names that we see attributed to Moses' father-in-law. It could simply be saying that these people who are mentioned were descendants of Moses' father-in-law. It could be taken that way, that it's simply saying that these that are being talked about, a Hobab here, where it says was Moses' father-in-law, well, in another spot, it says that Hobab was the son of Ruel, who says was the father-in-law of Moses. Well, dang, now we got another problem. But it's another problem that's very easy for us to look at and kind of work our ways through. Uh, when, when you look at the Hebrew and you look at the two words for brother-in-law and father-in-law, you will see that they are extremely similar. They are very close. Now, I don't speak Hebrew, but I can look at those two the, the characters on the line and I can see that they look almost identical. And so it's possible that it's a scribal error. That when it talks about Hobab here, it's not talking about Hobab as Moses' father-in-law. It's talking about him as his brother-in-law. Now, all three of those explanations I just gave you, that, that he had multiple names, that this is talking about someone, a descendant uh, of Moses' father-in-law, or it's talking about Moses' brother-in-law, all three of those, I think, have some weight and are reasonable explanations for us to assume the Bible does not contradict itself. Those are some ways to show us that, hey, uh, these things happen because sometimes people go by multiple names. So don't let that be a stumbling block for you and don't let somebody else throw that up in your face. I think that's easily uh, disputed. So anyway, we're introduced to Hebar the Kenite. Now, the Kenites were not Israelites. Now, Moses was an Israelite and he married a Kenite, but, but the Kenites were not Israelites. Even though they were by association of marriage, uh, they were not Israelites. Uh, now, they may have in some ways been friendly to the Israelites, but they were not God's chosen people. We need to remember that moving forward. All right, in verse 12, it was reported to Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up Mount Tabor. Sisera summoned all his 900 iron chariots and all the people who were with him from Heresheth of the nations to the Wadi Kishon. Then Deborah said to Barak, move on, for this is the day the Lord has handed Sisera over to you. Hasn't the Lord gone before you? So Barak came down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. Now, Deborah gives him uh, this, this prophetic word. Today is the day. The Lord has handed over your enemy to you. Don't worry about how many chariots they got. They got 900 chariots. You got 10,000 men that aren't well armed. Don't worry about it because the Lord has handed over your enemies to you. Now, that, we don't want to miss that point as we go through this passage, or any of the rest of them for that matter, uh, when we're going through Judges. Verse 15, The Lord threw Sisera, all his charioteers, and all his army into confusion with the sword before Barak. Sisera left his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Heresheth of the nations, and the whole army of Sisera fell by the sword, not a single man was left. So the Lord made short work of these chariots. Now, 
In chapter 4, we don't get any details about what happened. It simply says uh, that it threw his army into confusion. Uh, or something went on. Now, we get a little more detail next week in chapter 5. It appears that there was a storm or something that was taking place. Now, that would make sense, something that would disable chariots. If the ground was muddy, if storms were sweeping through, the horses would not have been able to run well, the chariot wheels would have been bogged, and therefore a million chariots would have been useless in those conditions. Now, the Lord was working there. It was the Lord that caused these things to take place, and the Israelites came in and destroyed every single man except for one who was on foot, who was running away. And that was Sisera. He was trying to get away. All the rest of them had been killed. And now they are on, on the trail of Sisera to see if they can catch him and take care of him too. In verse 17, Meanwhile, Sisera had fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the, Canaan, the Kenite. Because there was peace between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heber the Kenite. Now we're seeing that, that mention we saw in verse 11 about Heber the Kenite. Well, now the author is tying us back in. He was preparing us for what was coming. We're introduced to his wife, Jael. We don't really see much about Heber the Kenite here, but we do see a lot about his wife, Jael, in the verses to come. Let's read a little further. In verse 18, Jael went out to greet Sisera and said to him, Come in, my lord. Come in with me. Don't be afraid. So he went into her tent, and she covered him with a rug. Now, it would be natural for him to go there, because it told us in the verse before that they kind of had an alliance. They were on good terms, that is, Heber and his family, and, and the king, king uh, Jabin. They were on good terms. They were kind of friendly with one another. Uh, so this was a, a safe place for Sisera to go. So he goes to uh, Jael and Heber's house. He seeks refuge there, and she invites him to come on in, gives him a warm welcome. Come on in, my lord. And so it's looking like things are good. He's going to be safe. She even covers him up with a blanket or a rug or some type of covering. Covers him up, take good care of him. Everything's going good. Verse 19, he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. She opened a container of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him again. Now, I don't know if we, could, we should look too much into the fact that she gave him milk, but I do think uh, that maybe there's something to be said there. He asked for water, and she gave him something a little better. She gave him something nice. Again, she may have been trying to butter him up. Now, we will see why here in the coming verses. She gives him a warm welcome. She gives him a warm covering. She gives him good stuff to drink. She's taking good care of him. He's relaxed. He's a guest in her home. And everything is going well. He's probably assuming that everything is okay. Now, you may remember a few verses back that Deborah told uh, Barak that he was not going to get the honor for overtaking uh, Sisera, that it was going to go to a woman. Now, at first glance, we may say, well, oh, that honor's going to go to Deborah, who's the judge. But that is not the case, as we're about to see here in the next few verses. Verse 20, Then he said to her, Stand at the entrance to the tent. If a man comes and asks you, Is there a man here? Say, No. While he was sleeping from exhaustion, Heber's wife, Jael, took a tent peg, grabbed a hammer, and went silently to Sisera. She hammered the peg into his temple and drove it into the ground, and he died. Now, that's pretty intense. That's a pretty strong situation that just took place here. 
Now, let's talk about that for just a second. Now, we just saw this horrible thing take place. We saw Israel's enemy was destroyed here, the one who was coming against them and trying to attack them. But we see this, 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 this kind of this, this horrible means of, of, of murder, really, is what this is that took place. Now, nowhere in the text do we see that God led Jael to do this, nor do we see that she was a woman of good character. Uh, she was not even an Israelite. What her motives were and her motivation for, for taking Sisera's life, we simply do not know. But whatever those motivations were, as evil as they may have been, and... In the end, they ended up freeing Israel. Now, let me restate that as I said last week. It's not that God had called her to do this, but God did allow one person's evil to overcome another person's evil for the good of his people. Now, that's kind of a hard thing maybe for us to wrap our head around, uh, but, but, but God knew what these people were. He knew the evil that was in their heart. This is the exact type of thing that God was trying to get His people not to do. That's why He didn't want them mingling and intermarrying with any of these other nations because these are the kind of things they did. They would go out and they would kill all the other people. Uh, they, would, they, would, they would kill one another. They were evil. They didn't care about anything other than their own needs. And we see uh, how evil they were in their actions. Uh, we see how evil uh, she was in her actions. And we see from the Israelites that sometimes they are equally as evil in their idolatry, in the things that they do. And God is trying to separate His people from the evils of the world. And in this case, God allowed one evil person to overtake another evil person. But the Scripture simply did not tell us what her motivations were. But I do not believe that her motivations were because God told her to do that. Uh, I believe she did it uh, of her own evil will, uh, but, but I don't know that that's what God desired. But He did use that evil to accomplish the good for His people. Verse 22, When Barak arrived in pursuit of Sisera, Jael went out to greet him and said to him, Come and I will show you the man you are looking for. So he went in with her, and there was Sisera lying dead with a tent peg through his temple. That day God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites. The power of the Israelites continued to increase against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. Now, this passage and the one we read last week are, are, are two, two really dark passages that we see in Judges. We're going to see some more, but these are things that are, that are really tough and dark passages, and it shows you just how evil the land was. It shows you just how bad things were. Uh, this, this is not about, I don't believe, the book of Judges necessarily about the people that God raises up and uses, but I believe it's more about what God does to deliver His people. It's God who delivers His people. It's God who overtook the chariots who were coming against them. It's God who brought His people out to safety. It's God who is there for His people in the midst of all the evil and all the sin that's always coming against them and coming against us to try to get us to turn from the Lord. It's God who will deliver us. And just as God delivered His people in the midst of all the evil that was around, God delivered them when they called out to Him. And just as the Israelites did, we are under the same temptation, the same struggles, the same trials, the same evils are around us that are tempting us to do things that God would not want us to do, to pull us away from God, to live like the world, to live for the world. 
And God gives us the same warning all throughout His His Word. Look, don't live in sin. Don't do these sinful things. He gives us lists. He gives us all kind of things. Avoid this. Stay away from this. Don't do that. Don't think this. Uh, Stay away from this area and this thing and all these things. God gives them warnings and He gives us the same warnings in Scripture that we would stay away from the things that are evil and sinful. Lest we become those who are evil and caught up in sin and do just those kind of things. But God doesn't want us to be those who are sinful. Just as He wanted Israel to be His children and to do what was right by Him and to be obedient to Him and to be delivered, so He wants you to be His child and to be obedient to Him and to be delivered. And we are delivered by Jesus Christ. When we call out to Jesus and say, God, the sin is all around me. I've given in to sin. There are idols in my life. There's sin in my life. It's eaten me up and it's gotten me in a bad place. And God, I can't go anymore. I feel like I'm enslaved. I feel like I'm weighted down and burdened with my sin. That's exactly what the Israelites felt like. And when they called out to the Lord, He delivered them. And that's exactly what God will do for us. When we feel our sins weighing down and burdening us down, when we call out to the Lord, He will deliver. That's what Jesus died on the cross for and shed His blood so that you and I could be delivered of our sins. If there's sins you're struggling with today, if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ and chosen to follow Him as Lord and Savior and put your faith in Him, put it in Him today and He will deliver you in the same way that He delivered His people in this passage tonight. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you. We thank you for this word. And God, this is tough. This is a tough word. It's some some crazy stuff in here. So I pray that you help us just to kind of meditate on this and think about this. And God, and just know that you're good in what you do. And God, your ways are, are higher than our ways and your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, dear Lord. And sometimes we read stories like this and it's hard for us to comprehend and understand. And sometimes we get it, dear Lord. And sometimes when we don't get it, we just have faith. But dear Lord... When we read tough texts like this, I pray that we see in these texts that you are the deliverer. God, that you are faithful to your people. God, that you you desire for us to avoid sin and you desire for us to, to stay away from the sin of the world. But God, sometimes we get tangled up. And when we do, dear Lord, I pray that if we learn anything from the Israelites in this book of Judges, that is that we'll call out to you, that we will, that we will reach out to you, dear Lord, and acknowledge that we are in a mess that's of our own doing, dear Lord, and we've sinned and we need forgiveness of that sin. And God, I pray that if there's one in this room that's struggling with some sin tonight, whatever it may be, that they would call out to you for deliverance and that you'd reach your hand down, that you'd deliver them, dear Lord, that you'd give them peace and comfort and strength to overcome those temptations and desires of the world. And I pray that you would just give them peace tonight and and take that burden of sin off of them when they come to you, dear Lord, and ask Jesus to forgive them, to know that that sin has been forgiven and covered by the blood of Jesus. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.